Pat Farmer is a minor mechanic, an ultramarathoner, and a former member of parliament. Uh, probably best known to many Australians for having just completed the 14,000 kilometre run around, around Australia in support of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Uh, he's somebody who became known for his ultra-running before he entered Parliament and whose appeal transcends political boundaries. Uh, just before recording this, we went for a, uh, a run uh, up Red Hill and uh, around uh, through with the kangaroos of Canberra. Uh, I can attest that at 61 years old, uh, Pat still uh, runs as uh, quick as, uh, as any mountain goat. Uh, <laughs> Pat, thank you for uh, taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Oh, hey, Andrew. It's great to be here. It's nice to be here sitting and relaxing in your office after such a strenuous run this morning. It was beautiful this morning, actually. It brought back a lot of memories when I was a member of parliament I would run up and down Red Hill regularly uh, before Parliament would start each day and uh, yeah, brought back those memories to me. And of course, it's, it's still a decent challenge to go up over the back of Red Hill and then down through the saddle and out, out the back. So I encourage anybody that visits Canberra to make sure that they do that walk and to do it early in the morning or to do it as a run early in the morning. Uh, it's just so beautiful and picturesque. The parrots that are there, the gang-gang parrots, uh, the rosellas, the, the um, king parrots and so many other varieties. And then, of course, the kangaroos are always wonderful to see up there uh, in their normal natural environment and away from traffic. It's wonderful to see. So uh, that combined with the fact that you were pushing me pretty hard this morning was a great, was a great result. And it was my, actually my first run back since I finished the run around Australia for the voice referendum and what a lot of your listeners may not know is that that's actually the second time that I've run around Australia. I ran around Australia for our Centenary of Federation and was reminded by Pat Dodson's staff when I came through and up into Broome on this last occasion that it was 24 years ago when I ran it the last time so uh, understandably I was a little bit slower this time. <laughs> so let's talk about how you got into running. You uh, grew up as one of seven children in Sydney. Uh, was, uh, we, we, was running in the, in the blood? Uh, you know, we had... Uh, I, I grew up in... My dad was from uh, Italian heritage and my mother was Irish Catholic heritage and so we were a deeply religious family, I suppose, as far as that was concerned. My mother made sure that we all went to um, a Catholic school and got that sort of education because it was drummed into her. That's what needed to be done. And um, I remember uh, being one of seven kids and living in the Housing Commission home out there in the suburbs of Granville, suburbs of Western Sydney, that, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So mum used to work in the convent as a... Uh, she would cook the meals for the nuns and also clean the convent in return for our school fees being paid. So it was interesting because the only amount of running that I did there at school was either away from the teachers or away from school because I, I, <laughs> I didn't fancy school too much in those days. I would much prefer to be, to be out in the open. Uh, or uh, the parish picnics, which were around once a year, uh, and there was always a, a race on with all of that. So I did all the normal things like most kids did in those days. We played football and cricket. And, uh, uh, you know, so I didn't really see that I had any skills or any special qualities as far as running was concerned until 
until Cliff Young happened to pass by where I worked at a much later date as an apprentice motor mechanic. So this was Cliff Young running the uh, then famous Westfield Sydney to Melbourne race. Uh, what, uh, what inspired you to think that you could uh, run from Sydney to Melbourne? Well, Andrew, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of people see great athletes do wonderful things at the Olympic Games, the Commonwealth Games, and uh, so many other different sporting events that we, we, we so richly love. Uh, but straight away, within the same breath, they remove themselves from uh, being a participant to just being a, a spectator as far as that's concerned because these athletes look so far removed from the normal Australian, the average Australian, that we feel that they're great and it's wonderful to follow them and look up to them and to admire them, but we don't think that we can emulate their, their, you know, their accomplishments. And then every now and then somebody comes along that is looks incredibly ordinary and does something amazingly extraordinary, and Cliff Young was that person. Cliffy was a simple potato farmer... Mm dairy farmer who trained in his gumboots racing around his 100 acre property down in Colac in Victoria uh, herding up the cattle and the sheep and he didn't have a car he didn't drive he just he, he walked everywhere ran everywhere and uh, be, anybody that knows um, that area of Victoria knows that it gets a, a quite a good rainfall and so he was in his gumboots most of the time so he actually was continuously running in his gumboots uh, and that's one of the things that the media latched onto was Cliff Young, the gumboot runner. Uh, and so, um, you know, they, they created this whole sort of folklore story about uh, Cliffy racing in his, in, in his gumboots. Uh, and when Cliff Young ran past where I worked as a motor mechanic, uh, the thing that struck me the most was how just plain and ordinary this fellow was and how a man in his uh, the, his 60s could possibly run from Sydney all the way through to Melbourne in those days almost 1,000 kilometres uh, and uh, I thought if he can do that I can do that and that's the ability of somebody ordinary doing something extraordinary. But that Sydney to Melbourne race which I think was eventually cancelled for insurance reasons also involves huge amounts of sleep deprivation right the yes. uh, the winners are, are doing it still in what five six days uh, how how did you cope with that sleep deprivation when you first tackled the race oh as a young person I think without a doubt that is the hardest part of the whole event as a young person and anybody that's got teenage kids will know that they love their sleep and um, most uh, most kids if they've given the opportunity won't wake up before 12 o'clock noon uh, <laughs> each day so they miss the best part of the day um, and I was the same of course you know uh, I had to work so I was up bright and early for work but aside from that on the weekends I loved my sleep and I liked to sleep in so when it came to a career path where sleep deprivation was part and parcel of it all, I had a lot to learn. But I discovered a lot about myself. I discovered the tenacity that is needed to be an ultra runner. I discovered that you needed to be able to dig deep and find something within yourself to be able to push through the personal barriers. And this is why both marathon runners and ultra athletes uh, right across the board and know and understand that it's always a challenge between yourself. It's not a you against the other competitors. And the only one that says to slow down or to stop is yourself. So it's not like um, being in a boxing ring where 
you're relying on somebody else to knock you out or to beat you, you're often beaten by yourself. So the challenges always come from within with, with running in general. And this is why you find that most runners or nearly all runners are very humble lot uh, because they know what it's like to taste uh, defeat. They know what it's like to, to taste the, the grit and the dirt of hitting the ground so many different times and stumbling and tripping and falling and and they understand their frailties, but they also understand what it's like to push through those barriers and to find something new within themselves and to discover this wall that is so often talked about that we break through on a regular basis. So fast forward through to 1999, a, a huge year for you. You ran 14,000 kilometres around Australia leading up to the centenary of uh, Federation. Uh, you were called up by... John, John Howard and uh, asked if you'd, uh, you'd stand for the Liberal Party for the seat of MacArthur. And if I'm not mistaken, that's also the year that you lost your, your first wife, Lisa. Yeah, what, what, that, what happened was, um, you know, Lisa and I were teenage sweethearts and, uh, um, you know, I'd known Lisa for nine years before we actually got married. And then um, Lisa travelled with me on those Sydney to Melbourne journeys and through my early ultra days, which were the hardest without a doubt. And Lisa was a wonderful stabilizing factor in my life. And uh, so much so that we got married and we had two beautiful children, Brooke and Dylan, uh, and life was good. Uh, but Lisa mentioned to me, she said, look, Pat, you know, it's important that you get a real job now that the kids are, uh, you know, it won't be long before they start going to school. and." Um, you know, it's important that you give the running business away and you have a crack at this. So I was always trying to be a professional runner and I th saw running with the potential of being like every other sport where it was um, this huge spectacle and, um, you know, could really be something. But it, it didn't eventuate to that. Certainly ultra running didn't eventuate to that in those days. So I could understand where Lisa was coming from. So we both uh, decided that I needed to come up with something that was going to be my last run. But in order for me to make it my last run, it needed to be bigger than anything else I'd ever done. And to that point, I'd already run from the northernmost point of Australia, Cape York Peninsula, to the southernmost point of Australia, the southeast Cape of Tasmania, and held records for doing that. I'd already raced across the Simpson Desert twice and held records for doing that. I'd already done, uh, you know, right around um, uh, outback New South Wales from uh, basically the children's hospital out to the Black Stump and back. Um, that was for Rotary for the children's um, wing of Westmead Hospital and so many other different runs along the, those lines, including Sydney to Melbourne races and the race across America, the Trans-American race, 4,700 kilometre race from California through to New York which I did twice and finished second and fourth in, uh, and so um, against 30 of the best runners on earth. Uh, and so um, with that in mind, I decided that if I did a run around the whole of Australia and beat Ron Grant's record uh, of racing around Australia, then um, that would be something that would be good to finish on. So we both agreed on that and life was good. We were all set to do that. And just prior to me taking off on that event, a few months prior to it all, Lisa passed away. Uh, she was driving the car. Uh, um, she had just dropped the kids off uh, at our carers. Uh, and um, she wasn't far from home. Uh, and she was going to put in a day's work. 
and the valve drop basically just popped out of her heart. So she had what they call a mit mitral valve prolapse. So basically um, she had a valve that didn't sit very well uh, within, the, within the socket and it used to leak blood back and some people call that a bit of a heart murmur and uh, they don't think a lot of it. Um, I suggest to everybody keep an eye on that if they've got that condition and, and stay close to your doctor and get checked up regularly. Lisa got checked up regularly and they said everything was all clear. If she was ever going to have a problem, it would be when she was having our children, when she was under the most amount of stress. Um, and she was fine through all of that, so we didn't think it was an issue. And we'd planned that at a much later date, she would have a heart operation and get that valve replaced. Uh, things never came to that. Just out of the blue, she was driving the car. She pulled the car over the side of the road when she felt a, a pain in her chest. and she closed her eyes and never opened them up again. Um, and I would regularly run past that spot and just uh, stand there and take a big deep breath and hold my breath for as long as I possibly could, trying to remember uh, or trying to think about what it might be like for her in her last moments. Uh, and, um, you know, I still even go through that from time to time now, but um, all these years later. but. Uh, all of that aside, one of the things that came out of that situation was that I made up my mind that the two of us had planned to do that run around Australia together. And so my mum stepped in and looked after the kids for me on the road and they came with me on the road and we completed that journey and consequently at the end of it all, after speaking to audiences at the end of every 80 kilometre day, uh, I had the opportunity not only to break Ron Grant's record but also then to go on into the, a parliamentary career which I was asked to do by, as you mentioned, the then Prime Minister of the country, John Howard. Uh, and I used that ability, one, as Lisa said, to get a real job and to have a real job but also to help as many people as I possibly could. And I suppose, Andrew, the one thing that comes out of that whole scenario more than anything for me and still resonates very well today is the fact that I realised that there is a whole lot of very good people that are no longer with us on this planet, uh, on this earth, uh, uh, that have gone before us and I often think to myself what was their life for and what was it all about and why am I still here and they are not and so for that reason I always think to myself I need to justify every single day of my life. I need to justify why I'm still on this earth, why I still breathe air, why I still see beautiful sunrises and sunsets. And ever since that moment, I've always tried to uh, raise funds for worthy causes, support people as much as I could and do the best possible job I could. And I don't always succeed at that, but I, I certainly try. I can see very much how Lisa's inspiration and, and your ethic of service naturally led you into that parliamentary career. But I've always wondered, Pat, uh, if you'd been called up by a Labor Prime Minister rather than Liberal Prime Minister, whether you would have served on the other side of the House. Oh, I don't see a lot in your um, story, your values, what you've worked for in your career uh, that marks you out as a a tribal person for, for one, one side or the other. Well, it's interesting that you say that, Andrew, because uh, Joel Fitzgibbon, a man that was on the other side of politics and a person that became a good friend of mine uh, during the course of my time in, in Parliament, uh, 
Joel of course was with the Labor Party and uh, he said to me one time, he said, Pat, if you were asked by a, a Labor Prime Minister to have gone into politics, would you have done it? And I said, absolutely yes. I said, um, to me, I, I didn't differentiate between the two parties. In fact, they're both in a lot of ways very similar. Um, and the department heads always remain the same. Um, so people within the departments who advise all the ministers, they're a constant regardless of who's in, in power. So they are still given the same advice all the way through. Uh, so it takes a very strong uh, leader uh, as a prime minister or as a minister to actually put their own stamp on each of the portfolios. And you don't see that very regularly. So what I'm trying to say is that um, yes, I would have run for any, any party that allowed me the opportunity to be able to make a difference to the people that I could serve. And the people that I was serving at that point in time was the people in MacArthur where I lived. Uh, and there was a lot to be done in that area. Uh, people were dying in the corridors of the hospital at Campbelltown. It was regularly in the papers for, um, uh, you know, the, the shortage in doctors and nurses mm -hmm. and healthcare professionals. And that seems to be an issue that never, never goes away. But as a result of me entering into parliament, we were able to get a lot of money injected into the area. And, you know, I'll just tell you one thing about politics, which I'm sure you know, but perhaps your listeners are not quite a fay with it. And that is that Whenever uh, a member wins um, a very tight seat, uh, then you find both parties show a great interest in that area. If it's a very, uh, a very safe seat, uh, Labor, Liberal, Greens, whatever, uh, then what happens is um, people tend to, the, the, to neglect it as far as pouring resources into that area is concerned. So when I won that seat, all of a sudden we got a huge focus on Western Sydney and we got a lot of money poured into that area, one, to allow us to be able to keep that seat. But then, of course, the Labor Party were doing the same because they wanted to win the seat back. So that was a win for the people. And so, um, you know, regardless of what side of politics anybody's on, at the end of the day, it was about serving the people and trying to get the best outcomes for them. And consequently, we now have a great uh, private hospital there. We now have a, a great public hospital there. We even have a medical school there, which I was proud to have been uh, an initiating force behind all of that in the early days. Uh, and so many other educational prospects and opportunities for the kids out there and the place has just grown astronomically since those days. But I will say this much too, that was also the result of uh, um, uh, Michael Knight, who was the state member back out in the early days out there and was the member for um, not only for Campbelltown, but he was also uh, the, um, the, uh, the minister for the Olympics. Mm. And consequently, with the 2000 Olympics coming up, he had a lot of pull and he was able to get things like level rail crossings, uh, fixed up so that we got uh, bridges over the top of those level rail crossings which then sped up traffic enormously and Im improved things out of sight. So the two of us working together made a great team because we're both passionate about the area first and foremost and we, that was aside from the po political sides that we were on. So last time I looked at the figures, the average uh, duration of service of a federal member of parliament was eight and a half years. You served nine years from 2001 to 2010. 
Uh, and uh, on your retirement from Parliament, you announced that you were going to uh, undertake an even tougher run, uh, the Pole to Pole Challenge. Uh, clearly, your time in Parliament hadn't uh, dampened the ardour for, uh, for ultra running. What gave you the inspiration for Pole to Pole and, and how was that run? <laughs> well, you'd probably be sorry you asked that question, but um, to be honest with you, it was a combination of a couple of things. One is I, I maintained my fitness while I was here in Parliament, so I would always run up the back of uh, Red Hill and, uh, and backwards and forwards every morning before I started work. And within my own electorate, I initiate a lot of fun runs for charitable causes like Lifeline and a number of others out there in the area. Uh, and I saw, as you do, a great combination of that connection to the people through running um, and, and a greater avenue to raise funds for worthy causes. So I love that, and I still love that about the sport. Um, but while I was here, uh, things changed dramatically. Um, I found with my side of politics that basically, uh, well, my side of politics then, that basically what had happened is They'd lost sight of the, the, the reason why they were here. Uh, leadership was lacking and there was a real focus on who the leader was as opposed to what the leader could do uh, for the people that they represented and, uh, in the role. And so there was a lot of tossing and turning and, and changing of the guard as far as prime ministers were concerned and leaders, uh, sorry, leaders of the opposition were concerned and prime ministers. Uh, that was the Abbott, Morrison, um, Turnbull days, and uh, it was just prior to all of that exploding, and it became quite a toxic place to work in. Um, and I'm not proud to say that, uh, you know, the philosophy behind the party in those days was basically win at any cost, so long as we could get power. Uh, so, so long as we could get into government, that was the only thing that mattered, and and often that meant. Uh, sabotaging a lot of good ideas that were by the then government, uh, the, the, the Gillard Rudd government back in those days. Uh, and it meant that we said no to a lot of stuff that we could have supported and could have said yes to. Uh, so, but um, it won favour uh, and we got into government, our guys got into government, but I didn't. I, I chose not to run at that point in time, I'd, uh, I lost pre-selection, I didn't lose the favour of the people but I lost the favour of the party because I refused to speak against things that I believed in and so um, consequently my, my, I didn't want to compromise my values and so I found uh, Parliament was a difficult place to be in in that point in time. So the only logical solution for me was to get out of Parliament and to go do what I what I naturally do, and that is to run uh, and to use my running to support worthy causes. Mm. And I found that there was only one other place on earth colder than Canberra and colder than Parliament House in Canberra, <laughs> and that was the North Pole. So I made up my mind. I was also looking for a challenge that nobody else had ever done before, and. When you look through things, records and that, it's very, very hard to find something um, that nobody has ever done on this earth. Most things have been done before. So I knew that people had, had obviously explored the North Pole, that ice cube that floats in the ocean up the top end of the world. 
I knew that people had run, uh, sorry, had travelled across the South Pole, and I knew that people had travelled through each of the each of the countries within the Americas. So that's North America, Central America, and South America, but nobody had actually combined the whole lot together. So I decided that's what I was going to do. So I went off to um, and and planned the run from the North Pole through to the South Pole via the Americas. So that meant dragging a sled on into Canada and working my way down from Canada into the United States and from the United States on into Mexico through places like Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador, Costa Rica, through the Darien jungle out to Ecuador, Colombia, sorry, Colombia, Ecuador, and uh, beyond to... Peru, Chile, Argentina, and then being flown across from there across to Union Glacier and then working my way from Union Glacier out to Hercules Outlet, uh, Inlet and then from there hooking around and, and heading on into the South Pole. Uh, I'm pleased to say that I achieved all of that. And along the way, uh, you know, I did a lot of good for the International Red Cross. We raised some significant funds for them raised awareness for the projects that they were doing within each of those countries. But we also show, I also was able to show the Australian spirit and how I was able to show to people that nothing is impossible, that if they set their minds on something and they truly believe in themselves, uh, that they can do anything they set their mind to. And hence uh, the book, my book, Pole to Pole, One Man, uh, 20 Million Steps. <laughs> Uh, did you uh, di did you find that there were moments during pole to pole where you wondered about gi giving up, or was there always a sense that you were go going to make it? Because this was a, a bigger journey than you'd ever undertaken. Andrew, you're an ultra athlete yourself. You know that in every single event that we do, no matter what it is, uh, by nature of it being an ultra. Uh, there is moments when you doubt yourself. There is always moments when you doubt yourself. There is moments when you feel that you can't take another step and you compromise with your mind and your body and you say, okay, well, I will give up, but I'll just take one more step or I'll just do one more kilometre or I'll just do one more day and then I'll quit. I'll quit tomorrow. And I love that line, that catchphrase, and I want to coin that because... To say I will quit tomorrow means that you will never quit because tomorrow never comes. And, and um, if you put it off till tomorrow, then uh, you, you will always succeed. So people often use that the opposite way and they put off good things until tomorrow, but I do it the opposite way. I, I put off bad things until tomorrow and then tomorrow never comes and I just continue to push on. So I'm happy to say that every single event that I've ever started, I've finished. Uh, I haven't won every race I've competed in. In fact, I've lost to so many, uh, if you consider losing as being not on the podium. But I have finished everything I've ever started, and it's the one thing that I stand by. And I say to everybody, the most important thing is in this life is if you're going to start something, then finish it. And uh, that's what I pride myself on, and that's why people know they can rely on me. If you're running 60 to 80 kilometres a day, how do you train for an event like that? Or are the first couple of weeks of the event training? Uh, yeah, a bit of both. Uh, one, you get yourself to the best possible physical condition that you can get yourself to. But that also includes getting yourself to the best possible mental condition that you can get yourself to. And I say the mental condition because it's most important that you always have purpose in what you're doing. If you have a good reason for what you're doing, then that... You, 
that will allow you to push through the bad times and the difficult times and the injuries. And um, so, you know, I was running for the International Red Cross. There was people who, who their lives depended on the work that the Red Cross does. And so I reflected on that and thought to myself, you know, I actually might save lives through what I'm doing and that is far greater than any pain that I would normally endure. So I can push beyond this. And so that's what got me through. So there was that. And then the combination is always when you're doing an event that goes for such a long period of time as that, you're right, the first couple of weeks are actually training within the training itself, uh, within the event itself. So you're actually getting stronger as, as time goes on, so long as you can get through that initial period. That's really what it's all about. Um, let me tell you a story that I haven't told too many people that happened during that run. I'll never forget, I was coming down into, um, well, I came into Mexico and there was this this huge outcry that I should not go through the Darren jungle. It was just too dangerous. There was a lot of the drug lords that had, uh, were basically trying to run Mexico uh, and there was a real fight between the Mexican government and the lawlessness that was going on out there and they were, the government themselves were being outgunned by the, by the drug lords. Uh, and um, so there was this big push. It was going to be too dangerous and too much of a, a sensitive issue if something was to happen to me going through that area, the Darien, and it was renowned for being one of the most dangerous places on earth at that point in time. Uh, Kim Beasley stepped in. Now, Kim was a member of parliament, a leader of the Labor Party, who was a good friend of mine and knew me through my running and also knew me through my time here in parliament. The both of us were in parliament together. And Tim tried to he was the he was the ambassador to washington australia's ambassador to america at the time and when i met him when i ran down through washington he said to me that there's this real concern about me going through the darien and um i should consider flying over that area or going around it somehow but not going through it and when i explained to him what i'd already been through with the north pole and north america and the top end of canada how difficult all of that was and how important it was that I continue to press on. He agreed to try and do everything in his power to help me mm. uh, and, and he did. So he organised a barbecue, got the leaders of each of those countries together, the ambassadors at least, had a good chat with them, explained to them the tenacious person that I was and the, the cause that I was running for and he um, persuaded them to support me through that region. Uh, when I got to um, uh, the other end of Panama, and um, I had a truckload of army personnel show up. There were special forces that patrolled the Darien jungle, and they showed up and they said, "We're here to um, to basically be your bodyguards through the Darien jungle." So they were with me, 19 armed soldiers, as I went through from uh, the next five days from Panama through to Colombia, through the Darien jungle. Uh, and we cut our way through the thickest part of the jungle because we, we would have been sitting ducks if we'd gone out into the normal tracks, out into the open. Uh, and I learned a lot from those guys as we went through there. But the most I learned from them was at the very end. Uh, I'll never forget, we came up over the top of this mountain and down into a place called Turbo in Colombia. And that officially marked me being out of the Darien jungle and into uh, Colombia. 
uh, and into Turbo the city uh, and they basically signed me over to the Colombian police then. I was their problem after that point in time. <laughs> And I went back to thank the soldiers for helping me through there. And we'd grown a very close bond and spoken a lot on our way through the jungle. I'd learned a lot from them and I like to think that they learned a little from me as well. And when I went back, they were all crying. And when I said to the lieutenant, what's um, Lieutenant Perez? I said, why, why are the men so upset? And he said, they've never saved a life before. He said their job is to go into the jungle uh, through what we call hunting season, uh, find the bad guys and kill them, get rid of them. As simple as that. Not to take them before a court of law or whatever, but just to eradicate the problem. Uh, and um, he said, through helping you through the Darien jungle, we feel that we actually protected a life and perhaps through you we may have saved many lives and that's something that the men have never done before and it's really affected them in a positive way and they feel they feel very very humbled by it all and, and privileged to have been a part of this and um, it's really affected my men and and I've never forgotten that moment nor will I ever and I, I can't help but think if you forget about every other aspect of that run and just think about that, the effect that I've had on people as individuals from time to time, uh, just through my running, just through doing what I do best, uh, um, to change their attitude to life, their attitudes towards their fellow man, uh, is really something worthwhile. And I, uh, you know, and I feel that that's why it's more of a calling than it is, and more of a vocation than it is. A, you know, about the sporting prowess or the medals around your neck or the standing on a podium. So you're around 50 when you did pole to pole and then a decade later <laughs> as Australia moves towards a referendum on a First Nations voice to parliament, uh, you decided to reprise your 1999 run around Australia and do a, a run for the voice. Um, what led to, uh, to to that decision, and uh, and how did you how did you find it as you went into running around Australia uh, now at the age of uh, of sixty? Well, Andrew, I had seen through my run from the top of Australia to the bottom of Australia for diabetes, uh, diabetes Australia back in the day, back in 1991, I think it was when I did that run. Uh, I had seen uh, the problems on Thursday Island. I had been across to the Tiwi Islands as well, and I'd seen the amount of amputees that there was on these these places, and per capita the largest amount of amputees, people that lost their legs, their fingers, their toes, uh, as a result of diabetes and poor diet, type 2 diabetes, uh, and they'd lost their eyesight as a result of it, and I knew that there was an absolute need for change within the communities around Australia. I knew that they weren't uh, getting available to them the health benefits that all of us take for granted in the cities. I knew that there was a, a huge uh, deficit between the haves and the have-nots uh, between the cities and uh, those rural and regional areas where most First Nations people lived. Uh, and so when the opportunity came, came along to be able to stand up for the voice and to be able to be a voice for the voice and say to um, most Australians that um, this is a good thing, that the things that have been in place, uh, though we've tried our hardest and, and people have often tried 
and been well-meaning but made the wrong decisions and the wrong policies. And so consequently, the system that was in place wasn't working very well for our First Nations people. And so the last 200 years has been very, very cruel to them and, and set them back uh, as a result. And I couldn't help but think, because of my interactions with First Nations people uh, through my running, that there was so much that we had to gain and so much we had to learn from these people if we just opened our eyes and we realised the significance of their culture and we actually took on those learnings and, and adapted those to our own practices uh, as far as environment's concerned, as far as education's concerned. Like, I'll give you an example. I remember I met this lady in Alice Springs many, many years ago and I had so many people say to me, oh, most Indigenous people are not very well educated. She sang for me Silent Night in 11 different languages, including German and English, 11 different languages. She sang Silent Night. And I'll never forget that. You know, it was such a moving experience for me. And it showed me that if people are given the opportunity to learn, uh, and then they can. Uh, you know, like many many people, doesn't matter what your background is, you are then faced with a choice whether you actually do learn or not, and that's up to the individual. But having said that, a lot of people in these rural and remote areas just didn't have the choice or the chance. Mm. And so I wanted to do something to right that wrong. Uh, and so I saw by doing a run that would bring people along on the journey, show them through my eyes, my footsteps and my film crew, uh, um, the places that I was going through, what it was like really on the ground, not just uh, those Indigenous people living in the cities, but those people that are still living off the land, and show, show all Australians what it was like for them and how difficult it was. Uh, you know, and I was able to show some people, you know, most places up around there in near Halls Creek where, you know, you've got 18 people living in one single house and that house has got two bedrooms or three bedrooms in it, but there's 18 people living in there. That's multi-generations living within under the one roof. Uh, and that leads to all sorts of problems with young mothers trying to breastfeed their babies and, and, and trying to care for the elderly with, under the same roof in the same place, and then teenagers trying to have their freedom and, and, and do all things that teenagers do and have a life as well. And... and it's just not working, the system at the moment. And, you know, I saw TAFEs that were up there that were, were buildings, basically, but no teachers in them. And I saw swimming pools that had no water in them because they had nobody to maintain and look after these places or, or to run them. And so well-meaning governments have often provided infrastructure, but they haven't, they haven't backed it up with the personnel and the education for those personnel to be able to empower the communities to take over those, those things themselves. That's where the real answers lie. And that's what I saw was going to come through with the voice. If you could hear things from the ground up and fix, and fix problems like that rather than just building a nice building that you can point to with a plaque on it that says that this was dedicated by the government of the day and it's a great thing and we should all have a celebration around this building and then forget about it tomorrow. Uh, if we looked at the personnel 
and the the training for the personnel as opposed to that then we would go a lot further and uh, this has been was the big push of the voice and so you know I was wholeheartedly behind it and so much so that I gave up you know six months worth of planning to put the run together and then and then six months on the road actually executing it and then I worked on the polling booths on the day as well so uh, it was a it was a big commitment but one that I felt that I just needed to make it was a deeply ethical thing to do, but it was also a huge physical uh, undertaking, particularly given that uh, you started as an ultra runner at uh, about half the, the age that you were at the time you were starting off the voice run. How did the body react? At, uh, you were 60 when you started, 61 when you finished, <laughs> if I'm right. Yeah, true, very true. Uh, thanks for reminding me. But um, uh, look, physically, um, you know, I'm like everybody I'm never going to be as good as I was when I was in my 30s or 40s as far as distance running is concerned or anything athletic is concerned but uh, um, you make up for it in other ways as you get older you tend to build more stamina as you get older and Cliff Young proved that and so many other ultra athletes I'd like to think myself included have proven that through the events that they've done on into their older age uh, the other thing too is not only do you build up more stamina but you also you build up this resilience and this understanding and more about the mental side of your, your capabilities and you find ways of overcoming injuries and ways of overcoming problems that you couldn't when you were younger. And so um, you just draw on those strengths. So mm. if you have enough of a purpose to do what you want to do, age should not be a barrier. And so I'm, you know, I'm a big advocate for elderly people still being significant in the workforce and still being, um, uh, you know, a, a, a great source of knowledge. Uh, and was once again another thing that I admired about the, our indigenous cultures, uh, not only here in Australia but indeed right around the world, is their respect for the elderly uh, and their understanding of that cultural significance and the passing down and handing down of knowledge from generation to generation. Um, with the European culture, uh, that we've adapted to and adopted, it, it's, it's, you know, basically what's handed down from a book and then translated through that, that learning knowledge to a younger generation to, a, to, to use. But uh, storytelling, dance, uh, song has always been a significant way of passing down knowledge from generation to generation for Indigenous cultures right around the world. And consequently, if you lose the respect for the elderly, then you lose that knowledge. And that's why it's been so significant, so important. And you're running, uh, what, about 60, 80 kilometres a day, is that right? for the? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So 60 to 80 kilometres a day, day in, day out. And um, you know, How long does that take? Well, you know, depending on the day, depending on how you feel on that day, the weather conditions and everything else that's happening. So let me just give you an example. So I kicked off uh, in April. The Prime Minister, um, the Honourable Anthony Albanese, sent me off from, uh, from the town hall in, in, uh, in Hobart. Uh, from there, I ran around Tasmania uh, because Tasmania was a very significant part of the referendum. And then from there, I flew across to Perth and, and commenced my, my uh, journey on the mainland from Perth. Uh, it was a huge contrast between Tasmania. The mountains of Tasmania were significantly difficult. 
they were they, 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 not only altitude and the steepness of those mountains, but also the driving rain and sleet and the winds as I head across to the west coast. As anybody that's ever been down there or run down there knows, that west coast can get pretty gnarly from time to time. Mm. But it was an absolute contrast between that and what I found in Perth. Perth, there was a lot of dead air, a lot of stillness, uh, uh, a lack of wind outside of a headwind that cut in from Carnarvon all the way up to Broome uh, that was coming from uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and this is one of the reasons why most people, when they run, they run in an anti-clockwise direction or cycle in an anti-clockwise direction around Australia so that they get the wind behind them and then the Fremantle doctor, of course, going across the Nullarbor. Uh, by virtue, uh, and that's why I did it, uh, in record time the first time that I did it but this time around I, I, I it was more about the purpose than records and so consequently I had to go the way that I did and the heat was regularly 40 degrees Celsius every single day going up through um, Western Australia especially mm. from Carnarvon up to Broome uh, and uh, it was only two weeks prior to that that they had uh, a cyclone up there that wiped out Pardue which was one of the road stops along the way, which added extra problems to to what we were already encountering, and that meant that there was a lack of water and a lack of um, uh, fuel stops for my support crew. And when they're travelling as slow as I was on the road, you know, so 12 hours a day running on the road, and they're trying to stick with me, they couldn't whiz ahead to the garage stations, and so you know, it was many times when we were very close to running out of fuel between the vehicles and we had to do all sorts of things like um, uh, sacrifice two vehicles so we could go ahead, one vehicle could go ahead, get fuel and bring it back for the other vehicles, etc., etc. And so, yeah, West Australia was, was a very, very harsh part of the whole journey. Um, it was difficult and there was many days when it was just absolutely relentless. So, like I said, 12, 12 hours a day on the road, every single day, there was bushfires on both sides of the road uh, a lot of the time as we progressed on up through the top end of Western Australia. Um, some were lit on purpose to backburn back and some weren't. Uh, and so, you know, you were trying to sleep in a caravan or a tent on the side of the road and inhaling a lot of smoke as well. But that was part and parcel of the journey as well and made me realise once again the people that had no choice that lived in these environments all along you know, this was their day-in, day-out mm. life, whereas I could always retreat through to a city if I was to quit or give up on what I was doing. Uh, you know, so um, there was this constant reminder that the only thing stopping me from the luxuries of life was my will, uh, but I drew strength from that and I stayed out there and, and that's what it was really all about. It was about trying to assimilate. And like I said to so many people, especially in my last speech that I made at Uluru at the end, I said, you know, our indigenous people don't want sympathy. They want empathy. They want an understanding of what they're living and what they're going through, uh, the way things are at the moment. Uh, and if you walk a mile in their shoes and you understand that, then you find that you're a lot more supportive and a lot more giving. And that's what I was trying to emulate through my run and by encouraging other people to come along for a kilometre, two kilometres, five kilometres, or as you did, you know, 15, 20 kilometres. And I know Jim Chalmers ran with me for 30 kilometres when I was running through his electorate up there in Logan. Uh, you know, um, it was just fantastic to see so many people come out and share that journey with me. 
And I know that that sense of purpose was really important to you in terms of keeping going. But then there's just the basic physiology of keeping a keeping a body going. Uh, you know, I think about running those long distances, and I think about the the blisters, the uh, uh, niggles, for, particularly for knees, the strains of muscles. Uh, how did you deal with uh, with those sorts of things? How did you stop those problems becoming uh, really uh, really more serious? Well, when you've been running ultras for around 40 years, you, um, you pick up a lot of tips along the way. So being able to treat blisters in a, a, a sensible manner, blisters, bruises, um, understanding your body very well and knowing what's a permanent injury and what's not a permanent injury, um, approximately how long it takes for a torn tendon or a, a muscle to recover from an injury and um, you know it helps enormously and so it's all that knowledge so I always say that I am the sum total of that 40 years worth of work and all of those experiences in between and that's what gives me strength to be able to push on and of course the knowledge to be able to deal with uh, the aches the pains and the injuries along the way and uh, even to deal with the lack of sleep and to deal with um, uh, to deal with sometimes the lack of nutrition uh, getting the right nutrition and things like that when you're in between major towns or places where you could get your hands on something decent to drink or to eat. Um, you know, so it's the knowledge of all of that. So it's often a reflection of what you've done in the past and knowing that you've pushed through this barrier before and you'll get through it again, just hang in there. What did you weigh at the beginning and what did you weigh at the end? Oh, look, uh, um, I, I start most events off around about 67 kilos. Uh, which is a little bit heavy for me, but I always like to go into a multi-day event a little bit heavy. Um, uh, and then I, you know, I, I drop down to 59 kilos. Um, my ideal race weight is 61 kilos. That's when I'm fast. Uh, but I find that if I drop down to that 59, I lose a lot of energy and I, I become lethargic and I lose a lot of strength. And if I'm a couple of kilos above that, then I'm, you know, I'm once again lethargic and I find it difficult as well so your body finds its equilibrium and your body finds its best weight and it, it usually tries to hover around that when you're doing these multi-day events um, but of course you have to back it up and you have to back it up when you're doing that ma many miles you know you're burning around uh, 9 to 12,000 calories a day uh, it's most important to be able to replace that and replace it with good calories. Uh, it means good, healthy food, not just uh, rubbish. You know, I hear many ultra runners talk about chocolate here and chocolate there and a bit of this, some sweets and some lollies and all the rest of it. And that's fine as a little boost, but uh, you, you shouldn't rely on that stuff as your, your basic substance. You need to be able to make sure that you get the right nutrition into you. It's good, healthy, you know, vegetables when you can, rices, pastas, um, those sorts of complex carbohydrates as often as you can. I think the best I've ever run in my life, I ran seven hours for 100 kilometres in the World Championships in, uh, uh, in Hokkaido in Japan, 100 kilometre World Championships up in Hokkaido in Japan. That was back in the... 1990s early 1990s I think it was about 93 or something like that uh, and um, I was spent a lot of time in Japan at that point in time uh, I had a Japanese sponsor and I was eating uh, staying at a traditional Japanese uh, hotel at Lake Saroma 
uh, in Hokkaido, and I just relied on sushi and uh, you know traditional Japanese food, and I was the fittest, the healthiest, the the best I've ever been, the fastest I've ever been at that point in time, and so you know, so I I swear by that sort of diet, you know, um, sushis, uh, uh, rices, rice balls, those sorts of things, and uh, you know, good protein in the form of good healthy fish. Well, we're about to come back to Japan and Japanese food, but before we go there, I just wanted to talk about the impact of that voice referendum loss on, on you in particular. Uh, obviously, it was deeply traumatic for many First Nations leaders who had been working on it, in some cases, for decades. But for you, having put so much time and energy into that 14,000-kilometre uh, uh, 14, run around Australia, um, how did the loss affect you and, and how did you deal with that? Well, at first it was devastating, uh, I have to say that. You know, there's no other word for it. It was really devastating. I, I'm, I know the polls were always saying that it was, it was not going to get up and this and that, and um, they were quite negative in the press about the whole scenario, especially once, once the divide was made uh, uh, between political parties and once, once it was highlighted by both the National Party and, uh, and the Liberal Party and the coalition decided that they would turn this into a political thing, then the country was divided. Uh, and it was such a sad state of affairs to see that happen because this was a humanitarian issue as far as I was concerned. It was a humanitarian issue, not a political issue. Uh, and so it was only right that the First Nations people, the people that were here before white settlement, should be recognised in our constitution. Um, they were counted uh, in the referendum um, back in the 90s, uh, sorry, uh, 1967. 1967. Uh, they were counted, but they haven't been acknowledged. And this was opportunity for them to be acknowledged in, in the constitution. And given that respect and it was a great opportunity for Australia that we missed and so I felt devastated when the majority of Australians couldn't see what I could see but having said that most people live on the eastern seaboard and most people live around the coastal areas of Australia and they live in cities uh, and they haven't experienced what I've experienced and hence that was one of the reasons why I was trying to take a film crew with me into these places and highlight it highlight the what's really going on outside there and out, out in out in the rural and remote areas um, w you know it was it, it's a difficult thing to talk about because you know me personally you know I get up the next day and life goes on as normal but for so many of those people that I call my friends that I met in those communities not just on this occasion but on so many other occasions before so many of those First Nations people for them, you know, one, it felt like this was a real opportunity for them to to be to fall in under the one umbrella uh, that everybody else is under, uh, and to be accepted. Uh, and secondly, it was a it was a real sort of opportunity for them to be able to have a say in their own destiny, their own future, because that's what the referendum was all about. It was about them having a say in their own destiny, uh, and. And we was we, we I mean we shouldn't the fact that we had to be asked the question uh, should they have a say in their own destiny is, you know is you know hard to believe in itself but anyway that that's the way our laws are set up and so 
we had to go through this process. And then for it to be knocked back uh, just showed me that there's a real lack of understanding. So having said that, it was very difficult at first, but in reflection, it's now made a lot of Australians wake up and understand and, and realise uh, that uh, our First Nations people do have needs and concerns. They do need to be listened to. They do need to be heard. And if for those people that voted no that said that, you know, they have all the rights that everybody else has anyway, well, now is the opportunity to show them that they actually do have all of those rights and they do actually have a say in things and they do have the same opportunities as everybody else. So now is the opportunity for us to be able to emphasise that and to push that and to make sure that that happens. Um, one of the things that came out loud and clear, and you'll excuse me if I sort of go a little bit off task with this, but one of the things that came through loud and clear was the fact that many people said, oh, we give them millions of dollars, billions of dollars, and, you know, and they just waste it. And, it, it, and be, that's because a lot of people in the city, they only see what's highlighted on the 6 o'clock news with kids that have been in the past sniffing petrol or glue or uh, uh, kids that are uh, out of control and having problems. You know, we have that with our teenagers in the cities as well. And from European backgrounds and cultures, it just doesn't get the headlines that that the Indigenous people have been getting over the years. And so I'm not trying to belittle that fact that, that, that there is a real law and order issue out there in the communities as well and that there is real problems there, but it's about addressing those problems in a positive way. Uh, and so by just spending millions or billions of dollars and building buildings is not going to solve the problem. What we need is real good people personnel into these communities we need the doctors we need the nurses we need we need the educators we need the the mentors we need the footy coaches and we need the swim coaches and we need the people like that the people in these communities revitalizing these communities and and making that human infrastructure work uh, uh, rather than the the bricks and mortar infrastructure because a building is just a building. In order for a building to be a hospital or a school, it needs teachers and it needs people in those places. And that's where we should be pouring our dollars and cents into, into that peop the people, people equity as opposed to building equity. And many Indigenous people will tell you that the kids are more than happy to sit out underneath a gum tree and learn their lessons there. They don't need a fancy building, but what they do need, what they do need is somebody who has the ability to capture their imagination and help them to realise the importance of learning and where it can take them to. And that takes great educators, not good educators, but great educators, ones that have empathy and understanding of the people themselves that they're teaching. Yeah, and the importance of, of education in, uh, in First Nations communities, I think, is, uh, is being broadly recognised. Now, after the uh, effort of that, uh, that six-month run around Australia, you took a, a couple of months off. Now, I suppose uh, some people would then uh, look at a, a, a course, a change in course of their lives, you know, uh, taking a cruise around the Mediterranean, uh, taking <laughs> up uh, impressionist painting, building a deck on their house. Uh, but for Pat Farmer, I suppose it's no surprise that uh, you've taken on a new challenge and it's uh, another ultra marathon. Tell me about it. Well, you know, I think the running's 
proven to be my vehicle to be able to capture people's attention but also to be able to support worthy causes and to be able to help other people and to unite people bring people together it's one of the great things that sport in general does as you've highlighted in your book andrew um, we've drawn the connections between sport and economics and sport and business and the 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 fundamentals and uh, and the importance of, of those two things working side by side and being the basis of basically community and the fabric of our society and so um you know i continue to do the same through my ultra running i'd like to inspire people i like to encourage them to stay physically active regardless of their age no matter how young or how old you are all you have to do is move as we discussed earlier on this morning you just need to move and so um, you know, I looked around at some of the places I've been to and I looked at some of the places that I haven't been to yet. And um, I recently in the in the papers have been, of course, uh, Japan. There's been a number of countries for all the wrong reasons. But uh, Japan has, um, you know, been suffering a little, well, quite a lot since the pandemic because they have an older population that was um, very much restricted because the uh, the COVID restrictions that were placed upon them with all of that and the fact that they do have an elderly population is more susceptible to chronic disease and more susceptible to, to infections and problems uh, and, health and health problems. Uh, and so consequently, now that they're getting on top of all of that, it's important that they open their country up again and that they open the, up opportunities for people to see the beauty of their people their culture and the country itself uh, and so um you know i looked at that and i looked at the recent problems with their with that the airline crash that they had and i just thought that was so sad and the tsunami that they the tsunamis that they regularly go through and i thought why don't we put an emphasis on japan one of our greatest trading nations and one of our greatest friends and one that's very local to us and uh, a wonderful place to go skiing of course sightseeing and and for tourism and so with those things in mind I thought well yeah of all the places uh, right at this point in time where I could do a run why don't I uh, be the first person to run the length of Japan uh, and so um, uh, you know I've planted that seed and I have a meeting a little bit later on today in fact with our ambassador of Japan to have a chat with him about the feasibility of actually doing that and promoting Australia to Japan so Japanese see Australia is a wonderful destination for tourism and supporting Japan, Japan through to Australians has seen Japan as a wonderful place for tourism and for, for holidays and also for, for trade. One of the things I strongly believe in is sports diplomacy. Mm. And I think that many of the problems of the world uh, can be solved through sport and through uh, those connections in sport. Uh, you know, um, uh, immigration issues, uh, uh, trade issues, uh, uh, you know, a greater understanding with uh, other countries, philosophies, religions, etc., etc., can be overcome through that connection through sport it's a beautiful thing sport it gives people a chance to compete on the world stage so that's it in a nutshell you know i would love to run the length of japan this year uh, there was a time when i was running a different country every single year i'd like to have a crack at japan this year and also in, increase relations between uh, australia and japan and improve improve uh, on the the tourism aspects of both countries so 
you know, something I'm looking into this year and hopefully I'll be able to have a conversation with you again at the end of this year and say to you, you know, that was a seed that I planted. We grew the seed, we grew the plant and uh, this is the fruit that is bearing now in relation to our tourism. Pat, a couple of final questions as we uh, wrap up the conversation. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> Jeepers. Jeepers, so much. I was such an idiot when I was young. Uh, when I was young, I made so many mistakes. But uh, in hindsight, it was all of those mistakes that I had the, 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 the nous at least to learn from. Uh, you know, there's not too many mistakes I made twice. Um, and I learned a lot along the way. Uh, if I could give any advice to my younger self, it would be to get started early. So any of you out there thinking of trying to buy your first home or get your first home, explore every opportunity that you possibly can as far as that's concerned. Talk to people that have already done it and how they did it and all the rest of it. And I think you'll find empathy from those people and support from those people and you'll find a way. You will find a way. Uh, more than anything, if you concentrate on an issue enough, no matter what it is, you can find a way. And this is why I talk, I, I've even spoken to world leaders about, you know, the whole peace process. Uh, if they really want peace to happen, if you really want peace on earth, you will find a way. If you make that the one thing that you concentrate on day and night, night and day. But if you concentrate on uh, other elements of takeovers and destruction and negative issues then that will be the thing that you will find a path through to so I've often found no matter what what it is if you think about it enough it will happen so I encourage everybody including my younger self to continue to think about you know being positive the the goals the desires and uh, set your mind on those goals and think of nothing else but success and you will feel success and you will understand success and you'll experience success in your life. When are you most happy? I'm most happy when I'm running. Um, uh, as you and I discussed, you know, I, I, I've come here into your office for this podcast and uh, I see in your office that you have a treadmill, uh, you have a, um, a workout bike in your office and it reminded me of when I had a treadmill in my office and people would often come in for meetings and I'd be on the treadmill talking to them, uh, not through disrespect of their issues and their concerns, but just that was just when I could think clearly when I'm moving. And I would often encourage people to come for a walk with me uh, and discuss their issues while we walked and talked and I still continue to do that. And that's why with the Run Around Australia for The Voice, I was encouraging people to come on the road and talk to me, tell me what their concerns were and so I could answer their problems and give them the necessary information to understand the issue better. Uh, and, and so I feel better when I'm moving to be able to have clarity of mind and body. Outside running, what's the most important thing you do to stay physically and mentally healthy? Spend regular time with my children. Uh, my children are grown up, they're young adults now, but they are still those little boys and girls that, that um, I remember so well that I was leading around the corridors here in Parliament and uh, also, you know, just taking the kindergarten into preschool and taking them for the first ice cream and in my daughter's case to taking her shopping to buy her first bra and 
so many things like that and uh, I reflect on that and I often reflect on the fact that we learn more from our children than we can ever teach them if we take the time to examine the way that they change us they change the way that we think about things uh, the way that we look at things um, it's a bit like you know there was a movie how to train a dragon well, it's a bit sort of like that where you're trying to train your kids to grow up to become great responsible adults and along the process the person that's actually getting trained is is you because you're learning how to think about different things to negotiate to manage things differently because some kids uh, you know discipline works with them and other kids you need to negotiate with them more and uh, all sorts of different things but during the course of all of those negotiations you're learning about yourself more than anything and you're changing the way that you do business the way that you do things with them and and that helps you with every other aspect of your life do you have any guilty pleasures uh, chocolate is my um, downfall in life. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I have agreed that we're not allowed to have Tim Tams in the house, uh, otherwise I'd just eat the whole packet. Um, so I try and avoid chocolate as much as I can, but it's my weakness. It's my kryptonite. And finally, Pat, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, w w you know... It's a combination between both my dad and my and my uh, my wife Lisa, my first wife Lisa. I have a beautiful wife. Let me just say this: I have a beautiful wife Tanya, who has become my rock and is a great supporter of mine and was with me on the run around Australia and through so many things I've done over recent years. And I'm very lucky to have found a second person in my life that's been able to um, support me uh, the way that she has done, uh, and I feel incredibly privileged but um, without a doubt the person that shaped me the most was um, and through tragedy was really was really Lisa and indeed my dad as well they were both um, uh, people that were far more learned than I would ever be but they were both people that took the time uh, they took time and they and that's an important thing. And, I, you know, I often say to people, the most important thing you can ever do for another individual, another human being, is to give them your time. It's more valuable than gold, more valuable than money or power because it's the one thing that we all have a limited and finite amount of. Uh, and we don't realise that often until we only have very little of it left, often until we get to our later years that we realise we don't have that much time left and it's most important that we we, we use every second diligently. Um, but if you understand that at an earlier age, then you won't waste a second and you'll make sure that you spend time with people and it's quality time that you spend with them and you spend quality time with yourself doing the things that matter to yourself and growth of yourself throughout this life and uh, it's it's the most valuable commodity on this planet. Pat Farmer, thank you very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you so much Andrew and thanks for the opportunity and once again thanks for flogging me up Red Hill this morning and showing me what <laughs> how much I need to get back into shape again. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. Andrew Lee in conversation. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.